Hi, I'm Jonathan Burke, Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. And I'm Jules van Binsbergen, a finance professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And this is the All Else Equal podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the difference between publicly traded firms and firms that are held by private equity investors, so privately held firms. And in particular, we would like to get a better understanding of what the trade-offs are in being either publicly traded or being privately held. What are the advantages and disadvantages of being held by private equity investors versus being held by public investors in the stock market? Yes, Jules, there are two extremes. The one extreme is you own your own firm and you run your own firm. And in that case, the firm is very well run. You are monitoring and you do a very good job. But the problem is all of your money is invested in one company. And that means you're not very diversified and you're taking on a lot of risk. The other extreme is a publicly run firm. All the investors in a publicly run firm are diversified so that none of them are taking on any idiosyncratic risks. They've all diversified their risk away, so they're holding a much lower risk position. But because there's nobody who has a stake in the firm or all their money in the firm, there's not the same incentive to monitor. And so the firm is not well run. So the basic trade-off is between diversification and effort slash monitoring. And the question is, for which firm does that trade-off come out on which side? Now, obviously, over time, financial markets have changed quite a bit. Recently, there has been a trend for a type of fund, a private equity fund, that still provides the benefits of monitoring, but at the same time allows people to be diversified. These private equity funds have two important groups that interact with each other. On the one hand, we have the so-called limited partners who are diversified investors that provide money to the private equity fund. And on the other hand, we have the so-called general partners These are the partners that are involved in the monitoring activity and the running of the actual firms that the private equity fund owns, and they're generally less diversified than the limited partners. So Jules, just to summarize, basically it's a way of trying to get our cake and eat it. Investors in the private equity funds are invested in many different private equity funds, and they may also have stock market investments. So those investors still have the benefits of diversification, but because the fund takes companies private and they have the benefit of private ownership. Basically, the general partners, they have a skill at finding companies, taking them private, fixing them, monitoring the companies and making sure those companies are well run. So it looks like we can have our cake and eat it. Yeah, because if you compare this to the historical situation where a single individual held one single firm, we've clearly moved away from that here because private equity funds hold multiple private firms at the same time, and therefore we still get this diversification. But the question is, are we really saving our cake and eating it? In the sense that, who is monitoring the monitors? Exactly. Well, first, let's admit that in the last 20, 30 years, there's been a gigantic growth in these funds and a concomitant decrease in the number of publicly traded companies. Indeed. So to some extent, this has certainly been an innovation. But of course, it doesn't totally solve the problem because as you point out, somebody has to monitor the monitor. So with the LPs are invested in many private equity funds, there's a limit to how much they can monitor the general partner. And then the general partners 
have to monitor their investments, and that limits the number of investments the general partners can invest in. So while the general partners are obviously much more diversified when the owner owned only a single firm and all his wealth in the single firm, it's still not as good as a public equity investor that is investing in hundreds of firms. So the partnership would have a total investment, say, 10 to 20, which is still an improvement, but it doesn't diversify all way all the risk. Agreed. These are all good questions, and we're very happy to have an expert on the show that can help us address some of them. We are very happy to have Eric Zinterhofer with us today. Eric is a friend, a graduate from the University of Pennsylvania, and a very successful private equity financier. He's a founding partner of Searchlight Capital Partners and previously worked for Apollo Global Management. Eric, we're very happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome so much to our episode on the trade-off between private and public equity markets. So just to get the conversation started, let's start with this important question, which is that over time, the role of private equity and value creation seems to have increased. And what do you think are the key drivers of this trend? There are really several drivers that have led, in essence, to private equity taking share from the public markets. And if you think about most private equity firms, they're not big enough to buy companies that are greater than a billion in market cap. So let's focus for a minute on public companies that are less than a billion in market cap. And let's talk about the conditions that exist if you're public in that size range. It's not a great place to be if you're a public company. First and foremost, if you look at the data, public companies of less than a billion in market cap trade at almost four times less in multiple on a TEV to EBITDA basis than larger cap companies. And in addition to that, they're very illiquid. I was talking to a really close friend of mine who was at one of the biggest hedge funds who went to set up a smaller fund, but still a $2 billion plus fund, very well-respected, great active investor. And I was talking to him about this, and I said, would you ever buy a stock in a company, let's say your core position is $20 million. Uh, and he said, yeah, it's probably about maybe a little bit bigger. I said, would you ever buy a stock in a company of less than a billion market cap? And he said, absolutely not. No way. And I started looking at the data around this. And what I saw is that the average daily trading volume for kind of this category of stocks, less than a billion, is about $2.9 million a day. And if you do the math on that and say you're buying at about 20% of average daily trading volume, it would take about 30 days to build a $20 million position and also 30 days to take off a $20 million position. So think about that. Even if you're a more fundamental long-term investor, that's scary. I mean, you're supposed to be investing in liquid securities. You're supposed to be able to move quickly in times of dislocation. You simply can't do that in, let's say, a sub-billion market cap business. The other factors we can go through, because there are many, is the fact that you have, let's call it the Vanguard, BlackRock, and State Streets of the world that are the primary owners of public companies. And they're often something like 25% of the votes in S&P 500 companies. These are passive investors who typically vote however they're told to by the advisory groups for different shareholders. And so shareholder engagement can be all over the place as a public company. 
And then I'll make one more point and we can get into a lot of other issues. We took a company private last year. We saved almost $5 million in public company costs on a business that's doing about 70 million of EBITDA. That's, you know, about 6% of EBITDA was saved just by being private. Now, why is that? There's a lot of the red tape, the regulatory dynamics, the costs of being public are enormous. So Eric, when I teach corporate finance, I talk about what I call the fundamental trade-off of corporate finance. And I tell them that the trade-off of corporate finance is, on the one hand, you can own your own company, so it's very well run, but you're highly undiversified. On the other hand, you can sell the company, we take the company public, so now you can hold a diversified portfolio, but then there's nobody looking over the shoulder of management. And I call that the fundamental trade-off of corporate finance. What do you think has changed in the last few years that's moved that trade-off so that we move towards private? I'm biased around this, obviously, but I feel very strongly that public companies with board members that are not major shareholders lack a critical constituency to drive balanced performance. Like any good functioning machine, you need different stakeholders doing their best at play in any well-functioning company. And active, smart shareholders, often represented through the board, are critical to that. The public company that I'm most notably involved in is Charter Communications, where I'm lead independent director. And one of the huge benefits of that company is that Liberty, John Malone, and the Newhouse family are significant shareholders, very bright, active investors, some of the best capital allocators and strategists in their field. And it allows us to drive great long-term decision-making with interested investors that have a real stake in the game. So you really view the firm in that sense as a nexus of information of different stakeholders that together lead to better decision-making rather than a smaller group of people driving all the decision-making. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. I think that ultimately, if you don't have a board that really cares about driving long-term stakeholder value, and they care about making whatever their average comp is, around $300,000 a year, and they care about being on the board and putting that on their resume and using that for other things, then where is the fiduciary function? Well, then you say, all right, well, let's look at the shareholders in these companies, and it's index funds primarily. So there's no fiduciaries there. So where does that leave you? It leaves you with activist investors who step into the fray, who at times actually have some pretty interesting ideas and potentially beneficial, but oftentimes not so much. And so there's a vacuum there, which if you're a talented management team, needs to be filled. So now let's talk about also the negative bias toward being a public company at less than a certain size. And that is why on earth, if you're the most talented management team in your industry, would you want to be the CEO of a small public company? You'd much rather be in a private company with people who are, if you're confident in your capabilities, you're very confident to be around smart people who can enhance what you're doing and complement what you're doing. And by the way, in a private company context, you're also willing to put your money where your mouth is and take shares instead of equity. 
and deliver on performance and get outsized compensation around aligned performance with those shareholders, which in the public company context is hard to do. But Eric, I agree, and the points you're making are very good points, but something must have changed because we didn't have this big private equity market 50 years ago. So I could think of two effects. One is the growth of indexing. And the other effect I could think about is the growth of private equity companies. One more, which is the growth of regulation, potentially. I mean, the red tape in public markets. I think it's all of these things. It's a confluence of events. On the one hand, for all the reasons I cited, it's becoming more distasteful to be a public company. On the other hand, private equity, I think, has evolved from the early days where it was maybe more to simplify financially, financial engineering focused. And it's evolved into really deep industry knowledge with long-term value creation plans because financial arbitrage has totally disappeared and the industry has shown an ability to evolve in that direction and really focus on attracting management and delivering value over a longer period of time. If you think about those two things coming together, it's really just, I think, continues to accelerate this trend that we're talking about. So, Eric, another thing that is interesting is that different private equity companies have different strategies in terms of how long they would like to be in the firm, right? So suppose that it is indeed true, which I think it is, as you said, that certain companies are just better run through private ownership rather than public ownership. We're still seeing that certain private equity funds take the strategy that they take it private for a while and then exit through public markets. But if it's really the value creation from the private side that is important, why is that the way to exit? Why isn't the way to get the value out better to just get the cash flows out to the investors and stay in it? And there is a group of private equity investors that indeed does buy and hold and gets their money back through the cash flows. What do you think drives the difference between these two models? It's a great question because ultimately, if you're taking a business public again that you've taken private, you would hope and you would want that company to be more successful the next time around as a public company than it might have been when you took it private previously. So what needs to have happened? I think there's really probably two key things that need to have happened. One is perhaps through acquisition and perhaps through growth is you've gained scale. You've gained adequate scale such that maybe you've broken out of that small cap realm and you've broken into a realm where you have more liquidity and you can attract good long-term shareholders like my friend that I cited earlier that can be smart long-term supporters of the stock. The second thing is, you know, in many cases, ideally you've brought in a management team and you've put in board practices that are aligned with building long-term shareholder value. So compensation schemes, incentive schemes, KPI schemes, other things that are designed around a set of value initiatives that are not short-term in nature, but longer-term in nature. And I think if you can do those two things and reintroduce the company in the right way, then it's valid to come back into the public markets. Absent that, I think your point is correct, that it wouldn't be valid to do that. Maybe at that point, it'd be better to sell it to a strategic that can generate synergies, that can integrate the business in a different way into what they're doing. If you look at Danaher, which is a company, they take companies private and they keep them private, long-term investments. Why are they the exception? Or Warren Buffett, for that example. Why are they the exception? 
Well, I think they're what great private equity firms aspire to be in terms of their best practices. And they're doing it with permanent capital and they've built cultures and practices that attract great management teams, focus on the long-term and build sustainable long-term value. I think that many of us in the private equity realm would love to have the kind of capital base they have because it allows you to stay with companies even longer than you often can in a private equity model. In a private equity model, you can stay with a company for, let's say, five to eight years. But as you know from Dan and her and Buffett, when they build a great company, they're staying with it for 20 or 30 years. And once you find businesses like that, you want to stick with them for a long time. The disadvantage potentially of their model, and this is something that would be interesting to study, is what do they do with the companies they should be selling? Because part of at least the Berkshire Hathaway story is you're going to be with us forever. And I can't imagine that their batting average is a thousand. So indeed, there must be companies for which going public would have been better there too, right? And so they must have made some mistakes there and in terms of keeping them on for sure. So as the last topic, a very tough topic, particularly in academia, is the question of how do we do performance measurement in private equity? And just to give some context, whenever we have publicly traded securities, although you already clearly pointed out that not nearly all of them are as nearly as liquid as we often pretend that they are, but at least with publicly traded companies, we have performance metrics and return metrics on a very high frequency basis, which allows us to look at the value creation, the value evaluation of each of these companies with good return data. For private equity, we don't really have valuations in a market price, which makes it very difficult to compute returns. And so how, for example, can I hold a private equity company accountable against a benchmark? How do I do that without high-frequency return data? Jules, it's extremely difficult. And I will say our investors struggle with this. I can tell you all the problems so that you can at least know where those are. I can posit somewhat simplified solution, which is not perfect. Yep. There are so many issues in private equity. One is how at any point in time, these investments are being marked and all of this is audited, but it's still complicated. There's less volatility in private equity because you're using DCFs versus just comparing to public marks, which has advantages and disadvantages. Some firms have been very aggressive in using leverage, not only at the portfolio level, but at the fund level. And that can skew a lot of different things that can be used to generate higher IRRs, which some investors really care about. And that has been used by certain firms very aggressively in the last 10 years, particularly in a lower interest rate environment where the cost of that leverage was less. I think in this interest rate environment, those strategies won't work as well. So there's a ton of noise in the numbers quarter to quarter. Ultimately, the metric that is the only objective metric at the end of the day is looking at a mostly realized fund and just looking at the multiple uninvested capital that they've generated. Simply, how much capital did they call and how much did they return? And you can look at that company by company and ultimately across the portfolio. And you can time scale it because you know when those investments were made and when they were sold. And everything else, IRRs, marks in between, there's a ton of noise in the data, a ton of noise in the data. What we focus our investors on is multiple uninvested capital 
An interim step is something called DPI in the industry, which is what you've realized along the way. So that's distributed capital at any point in time versus how much paid in capital or capital called you have delivered. And again, those are objective metrics around what a company is worth that you bought and sold it for. So it's very hard. If you start looking at it over a long time frame, once these funds are realized, that's where you can get much better data. And for funds that have been around a long time, you can benchmark them versus the public markets during those same time scales. But if you're looking at the most recent funds in any of these firms, it's particularly investments that were made very aggressively in the last few years in high valuation environments. I can assure you a lot of those marks are coming down from where they're being marked. And if you had to put a number on the delay that we generally see with these markdowns compared to public markets already moving, is this within a few months? Is it six months? Is it a year? What is your estimate? It can take, I think we're in a little bit uncharted territory in this, Jules. This is a hard question for me to answer just because we've talked a little bit about our firm and our strategy, but we've invested on average at seven and a half times EBITDA over our last two funds, which is quite low compared to the rest of the market. And so we're able to mark more conservatively and we don't really face these issues. But if you've been paying 50 and 20 times revenue for businesses over the last few years, which a lot of private equity firms have paid, the question is, you know, how do you justify that? Now, it can't, and yet these marks haven't come down yet. So what they're saying is two things, really. They're saying, look, we've grown earnings enough and somehow the multiple hasn't come down enough to offset that growth in earnings. But I don't understand how that's the case. I mean, your discounted rate has got to have gone up at least by 5% over the last year or two. That's a massive number. You guys can do the math on a 10-year. That's going to decrease the aggregate value of the asset before debt by like 30% or 40% over a 10-year CF. So I don't really understand how earnings growth can really offset that in a one-year period. Not to mention, you have to, you still have to look at public comps. I mean, that should be part of your valuation, and those have come down dramatically as well. So I think it's something that I think could be a problem for the industry when people look back in a couple of years. Were these valuations really accurately done or not? If you are a private equity investor, in terms of the time commitment it takes for you to be involved with the firms that you're invested in, what is the equivalent time commitment that we're talking about? Right? Because obviously, we have activist investors, as you said, and we have people at Vanguard or others that go to a shareholder meeting and once in a while vote here and there. That is not even close to the type of time commitment that you make, right? Yeah, I would say I'm on a public company board where we're not a shareholder at Searchlight. And then I'm involved in companies that we're major shareholders on, where I'm on the board, maybe other partners alongside of me at this point. I'm spending 10x the time on the companies we own versus, let's say, just being a public company board member. And the level of detail I know is just massive compared to that. It's a completely different dynamic. And I've got a whole team of people that are equally focused on it. I think that the industry as a whole will continue to be fine. But I definitely feel like investors are going to have to shift back to more, I'd say, fundamentals in their approach. And it's just going to take a little bit longer. The good thing about the public markets is people adjust more quickly to that. If I talk to my hedge fund friends, their frameworks are moving back to ones that maybe were more familiar and 
like the mid 2000s coming out of the dot-com bubble bursting, that 2005 timeframe type of thing, or maybe 2011, 12. But in the private equity realm, it'll take longer for investors to realize, wait a minute, what's really going on here? This is unprecedented, right? We've been in a zero rate environment for 10, 12 years, and you have a whole generation of investors who've gotten into some really bad habits, really bad habits. And I have to continually remind people who are in their mid-30s what the dot-com bubble looked like and what that meant when it burst. I mean, we have relatively senior investors who didn't, they weren't investing during that period. They were young kids. So history rhymes. Obviously, there's differences in this cycle, which a lot of bright people will talk about and we have strong views on. But a lot of people don't have that historical context and investors themselves in private equity funds often don't have that historical context. So this is going to be a big learning experience for people over the next few years. We have the technology so we can monitor and set incentives so people behave in a way that we can predict will be good for us as investors. And that, to me, is the reason why we have the growth of providence. Just the whole idea that previously, if I give you money, then the only way to discipline you is I have to be able to take my money out at any time, right? Yeah. And the ability to give somebody money for 10 years and not ask for your money back, that comes with a technology where I can monitor and I can check what's going on so that I can affect this enormous value added. Because of course, if I know you're going to do good, then I want to give you the money and then that allows you to do a lot of good. I think that's interesting. And that's a good thread. The other thread that I would pull on, and, and you say trust, I would say alignment. Alignment, you're right. That's the right word. No, alignment is everything. It goes back to the symbiotic relationship that I described earlier in this, talking about boards and everything. If you have alignment between all the stakeholders over a long period of time, it's the biggest substitute for a lack of judgment around whether you can totally trust somebody or not. Obviously, you want to invest with people with high integrity. We all try to assess that. Our investors assess it with us. They do massive background checks. We do the same thing on our CEOs. We put them through all these different personality tests. We meet with people multiple times to get to know them in different settings. We do that when we interview people. Ultimately, though, what's your backup plan? It's alignment. And this is where the Achilles heel in private equity, because it's grown so much, is lack of alignment. So where does alignment exist? It exists in the smaller firms where most of the money, like at a firm like Searchlight, the management fees that we earn every year really go to pay the team. We don't really make excess money on management fees. Where we make all our money is on carry and on the amount we invest in the fund, which is substantial. And so investors are like, all right, you're using the management fees to hire a team. You guys as the owners of the business aren't really taking home a big salary every year. And you've put a ton of money in the fund alongside of us. The GP, so us, Searchlight collectively, are like the second largest investor in the fund. And then we're going to make most of our money on profits. And we have to get above an 8% return and everything else. So people are like, okay, these guys are aligned with us. And that counts for a huge amount. Now, when you get to be a massive public company, one of my founders came from KKR, I came from Apollo, things change, right? Those management fees actually drive huge profitability. And those are recurring and they're known. 
more or less each year. And so the public markets love those fees. They put a higher multiple on those fees than do on carry, which is, it's hard to predict. It's big one year, small the next. That type of cash flow doesn't behave well for public investors. So what happens? Your motivation changes once you're public. Your job then is to grow AUM. And, that's, and then all of a sudden, maybe you're not aligned anymore. And I look for alignment everywhere. And this is, again, most public companies lack alignment for all the reasons we talked about earlier. So that's part of the issue there. Eric, thank you so much for a really interesting discussion. Yes, indeed, Eric. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. And it's nice to meet you. I have to say, it might be a bit of a day of reckoning coming in private equity. Thanks for listening to the All Else Equal podcast. Please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from our listeners. And be sure to catch our next episode by subscribing or following our show wherever you listen to your podcast. For more information and episodes, visit allelseequalpodcast.com or follow us on LinkedIn. The All Else Equal podcast is a production of Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and is produced by University FM.